An Aloha Airlines 737 is doing an island hop when a structural failure causes an explosive decompression. How did maintenance procedures cause this plane to almost crash? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. We hope you're safe and well. And just so you guys know, this is the only time we see each other in person. Yep, literally this is it right now. <laughs> Miranda's going to kill people. I'm like dying being in the house for six days a week, not leaving, not seeing anybody in person. It's driving me nuts. So, on that note, <laughs> be safe. <laughs> Don't murder anybody. Like I was very close to. <laughs> it's been rough, I have to say. And I know a lot of you are probably feeling the same thing we are feeling. And thank you for continuing to listen, even though this may be hard to listen to when you're not traveling anywhere. <laughs> so, I, I just wanted to say that because I know my mental health has been not great this week um and so i wanted to thank you guys for listening even if you're not in the best state of mind on that note what are we covering today (laughs) on that note let's go through something horrible something different oh boy so today we are covering aloha airlines flight 243 we talked about this one a little bit last week i don't know if we did it on the episode might have been on the post. Might have been, Might a have post, been the post, yeah. But we did talk about doing it last week, so. And a bunch of aviation nerds just went, oh my god. <laughs> because they know what this is. Turns out, quite a few engineers probably know, too, because it's in a lot of textbooks, including mine. This is one heck of an incident. Um, this one definitely became world famous for a few reasons, and a lot of people have just know about this one offhand just because of how crazy this was. So this was on April 28th of 1988. We do want to note that this could have been an anniversary episode. This is coming out. To the day. This is coming out on the 21st, not the 28th, because of scheduling conflicts with people's recommendations, which I shouldn't say is a conflict. Thank you for recommending stuff. So yeah, we tried. But that's okay. It's close enough. It is. It's close enough. And this one actually wasn't even in the intended incident we were going to cover today, but that's okay. No. Um, the one we were going to cover, we were going to cover with Kara, which we've had her on before. She has to stay home because she has a sister who she seriously just cannot. Like, my brother's been out, so I, I don't feel bad going out, and I know you guys aren't sick, but she and her mom are, like, very vi- mm-hmm. vigilant. There we go. And high risk. And well, there's her sister's at high risk, so yeah. um, that we were gonna do something with her today, and then that didn't work, and then we couldn't figure out what to do, and then we talked about this last week, and now we're gonna do it. So and now we're doing this one, <laughs> which is pretty convenient timing, considering that this would be the what is it, thirty second anniversary? I don't know, I can't math. Thirty second. Um. Yes, because it was in eighty eight. Eighty eight. Eighty eight. It's also convenient because this is. This took a lot of research on our parts, um, and we have nothing to do because we're at home. Yep. And there's plenty to talk about in this one, so let's get into it. Go for it. So this was a 737-200 with the tail number November 73711. This was built in 1969. It was the 152nd 737 built, which when you're talking about 737s, that's really early because there are now there have now been over 
15,000 of them built, I think. Is it the 152nd 737 period or 737-200? It would be the 152nd period. Okay. I didn't know for sure if that was the case. Yep. Does not affect my notes, but anyway. And it operated all 19 of the years up to this accident with Aloha Airlines. The captain for this flight was 44-year-old Robert or Bob Schornsteimer. There's That's a name. A fun name. It is spelled. Like that name. It is spelled just as fun as that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great name. He had 8,500 hours total, of which 6,700 hours were on the 737. So he was pretty experienced on the 737. The first officer was 36-year-old Madeline or Mimi Tompkins. She had 8,000 hours total, with 3,500 of those hours on the 737, and she was working toward becoming a captain. Which she eventually did, for the yep. record. And she is. She was a. Um, one of the very first female captains on a 737, I think. Props to her. Yeah. Props to any women pilots, because aviation tough. tends to be a very male-dominated profession. Oh, yeah. Even though it doesn't have to be. Unless you're short like me, and then you can't be a, 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 <laughs> a pilot, but you know. There's that problem. So we can safely assume she was over five foot two. So the, yes. <laughs> this is true. Probably, yeah. So the accident flight that we are talking about today happened from Hilo to Honolulu. However, the 737 was scheduled to do a series of inter-island flights that day, as it usually does, and it was assigned a captain and a first officer first thing in the morning, with a scheduled change of the first officer midday. The original first officer arrived at 5 a.m. at the dispatch office to familiarize himself with the operations paperwork, and then he proceeded to the airline ramp to begin the pre-flight inspection of the aircraft. At that time, it was pre-dawn darkness, and he inspected the external of the aircraft visually under the ramp lighting and found nothing unusual with the airplane. The captain checked in with the dispatch office at 5.10 a.m., completed the pre-departure duties, and proceeded to the airplane. The crew completed three round-trip flights, one each from Honolulu to Hilo, Maui, and Kauai. All six flights were uneventful. At 11 a.m., the scheduled first officer change occurred at Honolulu for the remainder of the day. The crew then flew to Maui, and then from Maui to Hilo. Both of those flights were uneventful. At 1.25, Flight 243 departed Hilo for Honolulu as part of their continued scheduled service for the day. There were three cabin crew, 89 passengers, and an air traffic control observer in the jump seat in the cockpit. Which was not mentioned in the Mayday episode. Nope. Did you watch the Mayday episode? Uh -huh. We watched the Mayday episode. The planned route had the airplane cruising at 24,000 feet from Honolulu, with Maui listed as the alternate landing airport. Anytime you fly a route, you have to pick an alternate airport basically near your your planned arrival airport. Just in case something happens. In case something happens, in case weather ba is bad, in case whatever. For example, you always have to have an alternate. For example, for Denver, it's usually Colorado Springs. Yep, almost always. Yep. The first officer was the pilot flying for this flight, and the captain was pilot not flying or pilot monitoring. The autopilot was not used during this flight. It's too at short. Any point. It, is, it was a pretty short flight. It's supposed to be 35 minutes long. Oh, yeah. That's, like, not anything. It's no. like, get up to cruising altitude, and we're descending. That yeah. said... Pretty close um, to that, yeah. That said, anything above 18,000 feet, in your, you have to be an instrument-rated flight. That doesn't mean you have to use the autopilot, but that means you have to follow very, very strict altitude and speed guidelines. So, she can hand-fly it, and she was, at 24,000 feet, but you have to be very, very strict about your altitude and your speed. Weather was good, and the flight was conducted under visual conditions. Nothing unusual was noted by the flight crew during the takeoff or the climb. As the airplane leveled off at 24,000 feet, both pilots heard a loud clap, or whooshing sound, 
followed by a wind noise behind them. Uh-oh. Yep. The first officer turned around and saw a lot of debris, including insulation, floating around the cockpit. The captain turned around and noticed that the cockpit door was gone, and he could see blue sky where the first class ceiling had been. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. It's bad. <laughs> oh, no. It's bad. It's real bad. <laughs> the captain then took over the controls of the airplane. Both pilots and the observer donned the oxygen masks in the cockpit. The captain then began an emergency descent. He extended the speed brakes and descended at an indicated airspeed of 280 to 290 knots, which is pretty quick still. The noise in the cockpit was so loud initially that the crew had to use hand signals. They could not hear one another or speak to one another. What? Yep, there was so much noise in the cockpit they couldn't speak to one another, so they had to use hand signals. Did they, did they train hand signals in case this happens? No, but they were probably just like, that, do that. <laughs> pointing, that pointing, pointing. That, oh, that's not good. Yep. Well, I mean, you think about it, how fast are they going, and they can see the sky. Yep. Well, yeah, I, I don't, it doesn't surprise me they couldn't hear each other. There's so much noise. They were traveling at, like, 500 miles an hour when yeah. it happened. It's, um, it reminds me of, like, if you, if you ever are in a helicopter, they always have the headsets on yeah. so that you can hear each other well, it's the same talk. Thing. Yeah, it's the same thing in most small airplanes. In general aviation, you yep. have to wear the headsets because you just can't hear one another. And that's with a sealed cockpit. Mm-hmm. It's just that loud. So yeah, it's, that's, I mean, they even, they didn't have those big professional headsets and there was so much noise anyways, I'm not sure they could hear each other if they wanted to. The first officer noticed at one point that the descent rate was about 4,100 feet per minute, which is pretty high for an airliner. Yeah, no crap. <laughs> yeah. They're usually no more than about 2,000 feet per minute, maybe 2,500 at most, but 4,100 feet per minute is a lot. Well, I mean, it's a good thing because if they could yes. see the sky, then the cabin was depressurized and no one could breathe. Right. Well, and if the first class ceiling was gone, they didn't have any oxygen, oxygen masks. masks. Right. Nope. So they needed to get low enough so that yeah. everyone could breathe. Yeah, exactly. And they have limited oxygen supplies, too, so they needed to get down so that they could continue to do their job. So, fun fact, uh, when a cabin gets depressurized at a really high altitude, the reason why you have an oxygen mask is to so you don't become hypoxic, which is when you have so little oxygen, you start getting a little delirious, and eventually you'll die from lack of oxygen. You'll yeah. suffocate, basically. Yep. Um, but they need to have oxygen so that everyone can breathe, and you need to go down to a certain altitude to get the oxygen back so everyone can breathe. And you can only... Uh, it's like, what, 15 minutes? Yeah, it's like 15 minutes supply. Yeah. yeah. But usually you can get down to 10,000 feet within that span of time. Yeah, usually it's about 10 minutes they can drop, which is important, and that's pretty normal. And someday we'll cover an incident where they had no idea they were hypoxic. Is that the Learjet? Yes. Okay. I would like to cover that one someday. That Maybe hand the, in hand with another. That was the first Air Disasters episode I ever saw. Yeah, nice. me too. <laughs> So that's yep. how I know all this fun fact is yep. because of that episode. But The captain had supposedly attempted to actuate the passenger oxygen switch, but the switch was found to be not actuated. Meaning it wasn't working? Meaning that he manually tried to drop the oxygen masks in the cabin, and he never actually did. He thought he did, but he never actually did. He never... So he meant it to, it, to do it, but he didn't do it. Yep, he thought he did. He thought he had... Stated that he had actuated it, but he... He didn't. He didn't. Oh, good. Okay. Which didn't... Honestly, that's the least of their worries right Okay. Now. And to be fair, wouldn't have mattered. Because it didn't work. It didn't work? 
Yeah. Like they found out it didn't work? Well, it turns out things don't work very well when... The ceiling's gone. The ceiling's gone. And Which those wires, wires in it. Those wires run through the ceiling. So even <laughs> though the coach may have had masks, they couldn't have dropped. Well, and better yet, and I would get into that later, but uh, they wouldn't have had oxygen anyways because all the oxygen lines were severed except for the ones in the cockpit. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> so they were pretty lucky to have oxygen in the cockpit, and the passengers just didn't have any, so... When the decompression occurred, the seatbelt sign was on, and all but the three flight attendants were seated. The number one flight attendant was standing at row five, and was seen being sucked out of the airplane through a hole in the left side of the plane. The number two flight attendant was back by row 1516, and was thrown to the floor. The number three flight attendant was standing by row two, and was not sucked out of the plane, but was struck by debris and thrown to the floor with a concussion and lacerations to the head. The number two flight attendant was able to crawl up the aisle and aid passengers in the number three flight attendant, but the number one flight attendant was not there. So she died? And her body has never been found. She was never found. Were they over ocean when this happened? They were over ocean. Oh, well, that's why. <laughs> Neither her nor the chunk of airplane were ever found. Oh my gosh, that's horrifying. If you've ever seen images of some of like maybe in a movie or whatever mm -hmm. getting sucked out of an airplane, that's exactly what it looks like. You get sucked out. <laughs> yeah. That's why they have such well, they should have <laughs> sturdy well, shells and things. Do you have her name? I don't. Do you have her name? Um, I have her nickname. Okay. She has a nickname. Wait, was she the one Brendan was talking yeah. about uh -huh. last week? And um, I'll I'll get more into her later i guess but. oh my gosh that's but. horrifying can you imagine being a passenger and seeing someone get sucked out uh, of the plane nope. so that her, would be horrifying um i'm not sure she was conscious for very long um and i'll get into that but her name was clarabelle lansing and she went by cb she had been with the airline for 35 years oh that sucks she was very well known by a lot of people, actually. All of the flight attendants were very experienced um, flight attendants. I think the one that had the least experience had been with the airline for 19 years. Yeah, which is still a wow. long time. That's most of our lives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, we'll get more into that later. But let's continue with what's happening. The first officer then tuned the transponder to 7700, which is an emergency code. The transponder emits... A code that air traffic control can see, even if they can't communicate with the airplane. This notifies air traffic control of many different situations. Most of the time, the code is given to the pilots by air traffic control as a general code that says we are operating under instrument rules and being handled by this air traffic controller. And in this case, there's, there's only a few codes that pilots are allowed to switch to on their own, but anything that starts with 7-7 is one of them. Because those are emergency codes, and there are many that mean many different things. But in this case, this is a general emergency code 7700. An emergency code to notify the Honolulu Air Traffic Controller Center that the flight was diverting to Maui. The, flight, the first officer was unable to communicate with them by radio, however, due to the wind noise. The controller could not hear the calls, but they did notice the emergency code as they were flying about 23 miles south-southeast of the airport in Maui over the water. Starting at... 1.48 p.m. and 15 seconds, the controller attempted to communicate with the flight several times without success. When the airplane descended through 14,000 feet, the first officer switched the, switched the radio to the Maui tower frequency. She made a call to inform the tower of the decompression and declared an emergency at 1.48 and 35 seconds. She asked for emergency equipment available upon landing. 
The Maui Tower Controller was able to hear that call and acknowledged her call and signaled the airport's emergency crews. The Tower Controller instructed the specialist in the departure clearance position, so another controller, who probably wasn't as busy, to notify the airport's rescue crews via a direct hotline from the tower. The emergency crews and fire trucks took position along the left side of the runway, runway 02 at Kahului. At the Maui Airport, ambulances were uh, were available upon request only by the tower personnel from a 911 call instead of by the direct hotline. What? Yep. Wait, what? Yep. And the tower personnel did not consider it necessary at the time, given the information they had. Excuse me? Okay, listen. I don't care if a depressurization given could happen if, like, a cargo door flew, flew off, right? Mm-hmm. Which has happened. Many a time. We'll get into that one sometime. Yes, it's happened many a time. But the fact that you don't know, first of all, you might want to ask the pilots. And second of all, you might want to do that anyway. anyway. So, just in case. Because it's better to have them there and not need them than need them and not have them there. So by now, I'm sure it's required. And by now, they probably have their own on-site, like most airports do. But... Usually now nowadays, it's just required that ambulances go to any airport within the United States, along with the fire trucks, if emergency crews are requested. Bad call. I'm just saying that was a bad call. Yes. Bad call. At 1.49 p.m., emergency coordination began between Maui Approach Control and Honolulu Center. Honolulu advised Maui that they had received a 7700 indication from the 737, and they had been the ones handling the flight initially, and that... They advised Maui to be prepared that they may head your way, they said. At which point, Maui advised them that they had already talked to the airplane, and they were already on their way to Maui. The tower controller told Flight 243 to change to a Maui transponder code at that point to identify the flight and indicate to surrounding air traffic controllers, including Honolulu, that the controllers at Maui were the ones handling that flight. The first officer, of course, did so, to avoid any further confusion. The flight was still operating beyond the tower controller's area of radar authority, however, which was about 13 miles circumference around, or 13 mile radius around the, the airport. At 1.50 and 58 seconds, the tower controller requested the flight to switch to a frequency of 119.5 on their radio so that the Maui approach controller could monitor the flight since they had radar contact with them. Although the crew acknowledged this, they never actually switched radio frequencies, and they never did talk to approach control. They continued to communicate with the tower controller instead, who still didn't have them on their radar for quite some time. That's all. To be fair, they were dealing with so much stuff in the cockpit, they probably just totally forgot. Yeah, given that, I mean, it's kind of a big deal (laughs) when you can't see the top of the airplane. So, yep. yeah, I would think that would be a little bit not on their minds as much as nope. trying to land the airplane safely. So. Exactly. About three minutes later, at 1.53 and 44 seconds, the first officer informed the tower controller, We're going to need assistance. We cannot communicate with the flight attendants. We'll need assistance for the passengers when we land. An ambulance request was still not yet initiated at that point. Okay, that's the signal to be like, we need assistance in case... I mean, I don't know. To me, that would be like, okay, we should at least contact some ambulances yes. to be there. Yes, you I would think, think. Maui dropped the ball there. <laughs> yes. They should have called ambulance. Well, it wasn't the only didn't. time they dropped the ball, but that's okay. We'll get oh. into that. <laughs> okay. That's the, something to look forward to. Yeah. The first officer then provided the controller with the number of passengers on board, but not the quantity of fuel. 
The controller did not repeat the request for the fuel quantity, even after query from the chief of the emergency response team. So again, the tower controller dropped the ball. Dude, that's like the first thing they ask is souls on board and the amount of fuel. Yep, and they got the souls on board, but they didn't get the amount of fuel, and he didn't ever ask again, even when he was asked by the emergency team lead. Dude, dude. <laughs> yep. <laughs> who, I would like to know who's in the tower, because what? <laughs> also, none of this was conveyed in the episode. I know. Uh, they leave that is a lot true. of stuff out, though. They do. They only have so much time to cover this insane amount of stuff we're covering. Today. Well, yeah, they stayed mostly in the cabin for the episode. Yep. The captain then began slowing the airplane down as the flight approached 10,000 feet. This is required to comply with air traffic control speed limitations at all times. He then retracted the speed brakes, removed his oxygen mask, and began a gradual turn toward Maui's runway 02. At about 10,000 feet, it's okay to take off your masks. As we just said, there's oxygen that you can breathe at 10,000 feet. That's yep. why they need to get down to 10,000 feet. Yep. That's why he was able to take off the oxygen mask. Yep. It was also at this point that passengers realized that the people in the cockpit were still alive. Because they had no clue for these all these previous minutes. They had no clue if there was anybody still in the cockpit. Oh my gosh, that's... They thought they were just free-falling. I would literally die. <laughs> one yep. of the flight attendants, the only one who was really conscious at this point... She was going around asking people if they knew how to fly a plane. Oh my gosh, that would freak me yeah, out. She had no, to like, thank you. She had to cup her hands and like yell into their ear, like, can you fly an airplane? And somebody finally asked her at one point, like, is there a pilot in the cockpit? And she had to say, I don't know. She had no communication with the cockpit. She had tried to call on the phone and communication but was severed. But the wires were yeah. severed. Oh my gosh, that would, oh my gosh. And that goes vice versa, because they tried to contact the flight attendants at the rear, like I said earlier, and they couldn't talk to anybody. But when they executed the turn, people on board were like, okay, there's actually somebody in there. Yep. That would freak me out. Oh yep. my gosh. That's, that's so scary. Yep. <laughs> At 210 knots, the flight crew was finally able to communicate verbally, and both had removed their masks. The captain instructed the first officer to extend the flaps to setting one, and then to setting five, shortly after. A short time later, he asked the first officer to extend the flaps to 15, but the airplane became more difficult to control at, at flaps 15, at which point the captain asked for the flaps to be retracted back to 5 for landing, which is not very much, I might add. No, it's not. Because the, the captain noted that the aircraft was becoming less controllable below 170 knots, he elected for the approach and landing speed to be 170 knots, much higher than normal. I think she had calculated the reference speed at landing to be 152 knots, and he opted to just go over that because he's like, I'm not going to be able to control the plane otherwise. 170 was his comfortable space, just barely, and anything lower than that, and they felt the airplane was getting uncontrollable. Anything with more flaps was uncontrollable, and he just wanted to make sure that the airplane was flyable all the way to the ground, basically. 170 knots isn't undoable, but that is very high when the airplane lands between 110 and 120 knots normally, probably. Well, and the 152 was calculated with the runway length in mind. Yep. So... Wow. Yep. This is like a whirlwind. It's yes, like a it lot is. going on. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Using the PA system and the onboard interphone, the first officer attempted to communicate with the flight attendants, but there was no response. The captain then requested for the landing gear to be lowered at a normal point along the approach pattern. The main gear indicated down and locked by a green light, but the nose gear did not indicate as such. Manual extension was then selected instead, but there was still no green light indication for the nose gear. However, there was also no red indicator to indicate an unsafe situation. 
After another manual attempt, the handle was placed down to complete the manual extension. The nose gear down lock viewer was never used because the center jump seat where the viewer is was occupied and the captain believed it was more urgent to land the airplane than it was to get up, check the landing gear, do a loop around, and come back to land. Yeah, he's probably right. To be fair, that was probably a good, good, probably, good judgment. Yeah, probably a good call there, <laughs> yeah. I would want to just land it, too. I'd yeah. be like, I just want to get on the ground, man. I don't... But also keep in mind, if for whatever reason the nose gear wasn't down and they touched the cockpit, now the cockpit's only being held on by so much, it could fly off. That's true. They were worried about that. They were worried about fuel fires. They were worried about other damage to the airplanes and injury to passengers from gear collapse, things like that. But to be fair, of the list of things I would be worried about, at least they'd get the airplane on the ground. Falling out of an airplane at 24,000 feet? Yeah, that's one of them. Yeah. Like, (laughs) it's better to... I would think, from my point of view, if I was flying the plane... And I didn't know the nose gear was down. I'd be like, you know what? It'd be a good way to die. At least I would die and the passengers wouldn't. That's fair. So, I, I mean, I think putting the passengers' lives in front of your own has uh, everything to do right. with yeah. it. Yeah. Normally, the procedure for this is to fly past the airport low enough that the tower controllers can spot the, the landing gear of the airplane and have them let you know that the landing gear is down or not. And the, well, the and most knows... that can tell you is that the landing gear might be visible, but it wouldn't actually still be able to tell you if the landing gear is locked. It could still collapse on landing. Well, and you you don't know what that plane is capable of at that point, and so right. trying to go around after that may have caused nope. a, a worse situation. Oh, so yeah. I think he did make the right call in just Absolutely. trying oh, yeah. to land the plane. Absolutely. Just voicing his potential concerns. Yeah, exactly. So at 1.55 and 5 seconds, the first officer advised the tower controller, we won't have a nose gear. And at 1.56 and 14 seconds, the crew, the crew advised the tower, we'll need all of the equipment you've got. Please send all of the help you can. Yep. SOS. SOS. <laughs> while the power levers were advanced to maintain speed while maneuvering on the approach, the airplane began yawing strangely, which indicated to the flight crew that the left engine had failed. They another didn't get thing, an indication on that? Another thing, nope. Another thing that was never mentioned anywhere else oh, yeah. that I saw. They didn't mention anything about the engines in the episode at all. Mm-mm. But the left engine had failed. The captain attempted to restart the number one engine on the left wing between 170 and 200 knots, but this was unsuccessful. Yikes. Mm-hmm. So you're flying with one engine mm-hmm. with the top of the airplane gone. Mm-hmm. And maybe a nose gear that's collapsed. Yeah, that's great. You've got some problems. <laughs> yeah. Horrible. Oh my gosh. A normal descent profile was established four miles out on the final approach. The captain said that the airplane was shaking a little and rocking slightly and felt springy. That would probably be because they were hanging on a thread, basically, on the front of the airplane. Which was the name of the Mayday episode. Uh Uh-huh. The cockpit was, like, on a thread? Yeah, the cockpit was basically dangling like a spring. Oh my god. Okay, nope, 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 <laughs> nope. That's horrifying. Uh-huh. No. Well, and the passengers could see the cockpit dipping. Yep. I would rather die at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, this is it. I'm okay with death. I don't want to see that on the front of an airplane. Well, and we won't get too much into witness statements. The episode does a good job of that, but... Like, there was there was one person on board, I can't remember his, I have it written somewhere, 
he had some aviation experience and he's like, this feels weird. Yeah, everything about yeah. this is just not normal. There was one passenger that when she got on, she originally, because I guess it was kind of like Southwest where you can pick whatever seat you want. Okay. And she sat in the first row and she had a feeling and she got up and was like, nope, and went back. Went to the back of the listen plane. Listen to your gut. No, this happens more than once. Always listen to your gut because I feel like... I think her name was Patricia Aubrey. Anyway, that's been my TED Talk. Always listen to your gut. <laughs> always. Doesn't okay. even matter what it's for. Just always listen to your gut. Her name was Patricia Aubrey and the dude with the aviation experience was Howard Kitaoka. He clearly is a native Hawaiian. Or some other kind of Asian descent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, go on. Sorry. So in any case... <laughs> Flight 243 landed on runway 02 at Maui's Kahului Airport at 1.58 and 45 seconds, 13 minutes after the decompression occurred. That's pretty good. Yeah. And they told him to just turn off the plane on the runway. Yep. The Well, uh, it's pretty normal listen, in emergency I, situations. I feel like, yeah. Well, it's like um the United that landed at, was it United? That landed at Denver and had uh-huh. a, a collapse of the gear. Uh-huh. Yeah. They just left it. We, we well, went yeah. by there. You're not going to move it. Like... Five, I don't know, what was it? A couple days after the fact, and we're like, hey, look, it's still sitting on the runway. Yep. I mean, it's pretty difficult to move equipment like that, especially if it's been damaged. The landing was normal, as was the rollout, which is pretty incredible, despite the failed engine and the high landing speed. The number two engine reverser and the wheel brakes were used to slow the airplane. During the latter part of the rollout, the flaps were fully extended to flaps 40, which was required for the emergency evacuation of the airplane. Because it allows them to get off the rear of the wing a lot easier. Ah. An emergency evacuation was then accomplished on the runway. Most passengers were able to evacuate themselves, but a few, including one with skull fractures, had to be pulled from the airplane by rescuers once all the passengers had evacuated. I think I read something that that was an 84-year-old woman that Mm -hmm. had the skull fracture and skeletal system injuries. That would just... Well, that would happen. I mean, you... Oh, my God. Uh, Nope. Miranda's looking at pictures, which I advise you do on our website. Or oh just God. Google it, because that's what I did. There's so, just an entire portion of the airplane gone. Yep, that would be the entire cabin over the first class. The um, the, for the entire roof over the first class cabin. And all of those people for 13 minutes were exposed to just the wide open air. Which, oh. at times, was negative 50 degrees, something like that. And they were dressed for Hawaii. Because they were in Hawaii. Ah, uh, okay. That's completely terrifying mm-hmm. also i always wear a jacket on a plane because i generally I do always too. get cold yeah <laughs> so where the moral of the story wear pants wear shoes that attach to your feet don't wear heels don't wear flip-flops and wear uh pants yep so one crew was one crew member was lost cb was lost during the decompression over the ocean and was never found she was the only person that perished from this accident. The only evidence that she was sucked from the airplane was the blood marks left on the edge of the broken away fuselage. There's pictures of it. That round oh dark gosh. spot? Yeah. That was her head. Oh. And I will get more into that later because it is pertinent. It is actually. Anyways, then for the other numbers. One crew and seven passengers were also seriously injured. There was the one flight attendant who had concussion and head lacerations. And then obviously seven passengers around the front side of the airplane were also severely injured. 57 passengers had minor injuries and three crew and the observer and the 25 other passengers were not injured. The 25 other passengers proceeded to Honolulu later that evening. Yep, they all got on other airplanes and finished their their journey back to Honolulu and uh, went to bed normal that night. Uh-huh. 
Traumatized, but normal. I don't know if I could get on a plane after that. I'd have to be like, you know what? I'm going to take a break. You know, I'll take a boat. I'll stay here in Maui for a little bit. Maybe uh, I'll get a boat back and I'll fly another day. Well, yeah. <laughs> it didn't necessarily say that they all took a plane back. Yeah, but they all made it to Honolulu. Okay, to be fair, some of them probably did. And after something like this happens, you have to go... This cannot happen twice. <laughs> there is no possible if way. If it does and you survive, that would buy be a lottery ticket. Unbelievable. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and I'll get into how it maybe could have happened again. Right. On that flight. So for wreckage, after the accident, a passenger came forward and mentioned that she had noticed a crack along the fuselage along a line of rivets about halfway between the passenger door and the edge of the jetway bridge hood just just before boarding the airplane. But she did not mention mention any of this to any crew member before takeoff. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Okay, listen. If you see a crack anywhere, period, mm-hmm. don't get on that plane. She figured that it was... No! Fine. She figured that they knew what they were doing. Never figured... okay. We've covered cracks before uh, that were covered up and caused issues. So... If it's not covered up, I would oh, not get of, on that of, plane. Uh, covered up issues we'll get into that oh so, good hand, I, mm. <laughs> so hand in hand with this um you may have you may remember that before i started the story of this actual flight i went all the way back to the beginning of the day with the the fir- the original first officer who did the pre-flight check right he did that in the dark and then there were no other pre-flight checks of this airplane at any time during any of the other ten flights this plane made during the day. Wait, aren't you supposed to do one before any time nope. you fly it? You are not. It was not required by FAA law, and it was not carried out at any point in time I bet during that the rest changed. of the day. <laughs> you would think, and it probably has, but it is not required to check the airplane after every single flight and before especially, every single flight. Especially for these short island hoppers. Yeah, these island hoppers, I mean, it goes all day. I mean, this was its tenth flight and it left at 1 p.m. The the crew never left the cockpit during the day. The only time that anybody did was the first officer change. And then when they got to Hilo, the uh, first officer, neither the first officer nor the captain left the airplane to do a check. They just stayed in the cockpit the whole time, and then they began their flight, their their accident flight. So here's the deal with that. Like, I understand if it's um, short flights and you're hopping between islands, maybe you don't get out, etc. If you're a passenger... And you see something like a crack in the fuselage? Worth saying something. Please talk to the flight attendant when you get on. There's a, usually a flight attendant right when you get on the plane. Tell them, hey, I noticed there was a crack between the jet bridge where we enter. Is that normal? Uh, should you tell somebody? And they should, <laughs> if they're trained correctly, tell the flight crew and you may be, like, the bummer of the flight, right? Like, you're probably going to have to get off the plane and get another plane. Okay, okay, but you'll live. But it's better than dying and getting sucked out of a plane. Or so. just having to deal with that emotional trauma later. Also, yeah. can we talk about the fact that it was so lucky everyone was buckled? Yeah, That's really. why when you're sitting, you That's should always thing. be buckled. Also, did they have a front lavatory? They did. And no one was in it? Nope. Oh, thank God. Okay, so because, because this flight was short, nobody was able to get up, so... Oh, that's right, because, I mean, it's... So you can't short. get up if the Only the flight attendants could. Right. Some people still do. Stop doing that. Yeah. Okay, to be <laughs> I fair. I hate it. It's one of my biggest pet peeves, is when people get up to go to the bathroom when the seatbelt sign is on. And then a flight attendant has to come over the intercom, like, please sit down. Yeah. You are not allowed to get up. 
So there's a reason why it's on. <laughs> now, to be clear, something like this, and we we will prove why later, but something like this will never happen again. Or the odds of it happening are so unbelievably low, it's basically impossible. That I mean, that's what came from this because they learned so insanely much. But and we'll be- get more into that before we do that. Let me finish the wreckage portion. Go here. for it. A major portion of the upper crown skin and the structure of the forward part of the airplane had experienced an explosive decompression and had broken away from the airplane around the entire first-class cabin, from the floor level on the left side all the way over the top to just above the windows on the right side. It was about an 18-foot, I think they said, 18 or 19-foot length. It is an 18-foot long panel. 18-foot panel, yep. From just behind the front door to just before the rear the rear of the first class cabin. I think it just went, in front of the wing. Because she was at row five. I think it was at mm-hmm. about row five that it ended. Which she was. That's the back of the first class cabin. Okay. The row of windows on the right side had fallen outward due to the forces, and they had fallen beyond ninety degrees away from the passenger cabin, exposing the passengers on the right side of the airplane. The left side, the windows were gone, and so they were just exposed as it was, anyways. So they're lucky the floor would, didn't. Well, the floor did collapse, but they were lucky it didn't fall. Well, that yeah, that's what I mean. Like they they were able to keep the passengers in the first class cabin in the first class cabin. Mm-hmm. Yep. They yep. they were lucky that it no was one they didn't get fortunate. sucked out like the floor didn't get to the point where they got sucked out of the aircraft. Yeah. It was very fortunate. You can also see though how it there was the potential for the cockpit to droop. Oh yeah, I could totally see where the springing came from. That yep. would scare the sh- out of me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the section, the nose section of the airplane had begun to crumple and flex downward due to the lack of the lack of structural integrity throughout the fuselage. The fuselage crumple area had caused the already corrosion-laden engine cable for the left engine to be severed, leading to the failure of the number yeah, one engine. Yeah, which is why the engine. I'm assuming the nose gear light also had an a thing with more the, than likely it had to do with electrical systems the electrical stuff yeah but, but the nose gear worked just fine the nose were the nose gear ended up working just fine and which is amazing because is. like when i first heard of it i was like they probably lost hydraulics right nope they were fine nope actually everything was still working which is pretty incredible but yeah they they lost power to one engine because the cable severed but it was already covered in corrosion from being in a you know climate that it was in sea salty Sea salty. Both engines had suffered damage from debris at the time of the decompression. There was minor impact damage to the leading edge of both wings from the decompression. Many cables were severed and dangling in the cabin, sparking and causing circuit breakers to be tripped in the cockpit. Oh, by the way, a lot of the injuries were from um, electrical burns. Yeah, because the wires were flying around, sparking. All of this is just cringe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just cringe. This isn't something that I would want to live through. That's oh my just god! It. No, I, I, I would never want to fly after that um, ever. A lot of them did, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But I teared up watching this episode. Mm-hmm. Like there were, there was a couple. They weren't interviewed, but one of the witnesses talked about them. They were sitting in, I think, across the aisle from each other, and they were reaching to each other to say goodbye. I would literally think I would die. Mm-hmm. Like, that would be what was going through my head. Is yep. We're well, going to die. that's what they thought. And so they were trying to say goodbye to each other. Yeah. It, it, it's That's just crazy. The entirety of this, the fact that they were even able to land the plane and get 
all the passengers off safely is like a big thing because I, I mean, look at the website, look at the pictures because they are crazy. There's an entire section at the top of the plane gone. When they landed, a lot of the passengers were standing around thanking the captain for landing the plane. They were astonished that they were alive. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. It really is. The passenger oxygen system lines had been severed, rendering them useless, but it left the flight crew's oxygen undamaged, which is pretty incredible. And lucky. Yeah. The fire extinguisher bottles for both engines were empty, and the switches for both fire extinguishers had been activated in the cockpit per emergency evacuation procedures. So they were activated on the ground. Uh, they had literally pulled the fire extinguishers for both engines. To make sure Just in that, case, if yeah. there was an engine fire, it wouldn't spread. Yep. Because you're evacuating on the wing. Yeah. The value of the airplane at the time was about $5 million. The airplane was deemed beyond repair and was scrapped on site for parts. Uh, yeah. There's no way to fix that. Nope. <laughs> it, would be, it, it would be so much to try to fix that it's just it wasn't worth it it's just better to scrap it yeah you'd be better off cutting that whole front end of the airplane off and replacing it with another one yeah pretty much (laughs) (laughs) and that would be way too much work yep and even even then it would be hard enough to try to rewire the entire thing and the airplane was probably worth more to the airline for parts parts than trying to fix it yep yeah so that's what I got for wreckage. Where are we at for time? Uh, we're breaking now. Okay, okay break, we're break. break. I also need more alcohol, so. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet get 30, bet get 20, 20, 20, bet get 20, 20, bet get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your girls got some wine, and we can continue. <laughs> so this investigation was performed by the NTSB, which stands for National Transportation Safety Board, for those of you who are just joining us and have no idea what's going on. Their reports are pretty great. Are they, though? <laughs> okay, theirs They're are like a lot very easier. long. They are, but theirs is a lot easier to read. This one was 81, well, it was technically 264 pages. But the vast majority of that was indices. Right. It was actually only 81 pages. That's pretty nice. Yeah. yeah. Also, they do speak English, so it doesn't have to be translated. Yeah, it does work out better generally. Yeah. There are some flights we will not cover because I can't find an English translation of the report. If you want us to cover it, you have to provide an English report because I'm not learning Russian. True that. <laughs> okay. So, in lieu of the ripped off section, because they didn't have it, the NTSB investigators began inspecting the rema- remaining fuselage of the accident plane. Under a doubler patch repair, which is basically where they cover a compromised section with another sheet of metal. So there was a doubler. Oh, this is... Don't get me started. <laughs> oh, good. Actually, get me started. They found extensive fatigue cracking along the upper row of the... There's three rows of rivets, um, actually, along where that woman had saw seen the cracking. Um, they go all the way down the plane, and they're used to seal that upper panel of the fuselage on and the longest of the cracks that they found was more than a quarter of an inch so we've talked about this before in the china airlines and we had chris yakaki here dr chris yakaki he is a what kind of engineer is he mechanical mechanical and he talks about fatigue if you want to understand more about the fatigue and stuff we've covered something similar 
um, in that flight. That's episode seven. So go check that out if you're a little confused on this. Tis a fan favorite. <laughs> well, according to our listens, yes, it is. According to statistics. <laughs> There had been light to moderate corrosion of most bonds, with some having severe corrosion. So when I say bonds, the way that they sealed this panel into place with other panels is they would first use an epoxy. It's a really strong adhesive. And it's ceramic in nature once it's cured. It turns solid. The best example of it is superglue. Yeah, absolutely. Superglue is an epoxy. Congratulations, you used one, probably. So they used um, an aviation epoxy and then sealed it together with three rows of rivets, which held it shut while it cured. And so the two adhesion methods, the rivets and the epoxy together, hold the load for every time a plane pressurizes. There were cracks at nearly every upper row rivet, for the record. That's horrifying. Uh, Yeah. These planes had a mechanism in place to prevent such a uh, catastrophic failure, and these were called tear straps. They were 10 by 10 squares placed all over the plane and bonded to the skin such that if a section of the skin began tearing off, it would only tear off a 10 inch by 10 inch section rather than what happened. So why did it happen? So this hinges on the fact that the tear straps would be bonded with the same epoxy to the skin, which investigators found were all disbonded due to corrosion. Oh, good. Yep. So, so they didn't do anything. Right. So the epoxy that's in place is supposed to, the crack is supposed to go up to that epoxy point, then make the 90 degree turn, go up the other side, and that panel would peel back. Which would still suck. Fall away. But it would still suck. It would, it would but depressurize the, the airplane. But the section of the plane wouldn't have flown off. Right. But because it was coming unbonded, so the, the literally the epoxy had was come coming off. off, that the crack was able to continue. Yep. And that's probably because of the sea salt and um, things? There's a multitude of reasons. For one, yes, the sea salt. Two, it was also the manufacturing process, which I will get into in a little bit. Before, Three is pressurization. Well, that's what it's supposed to undergo anyway. Before I get into that, though, this was not the first time this has happened. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> On August 22, 1981, a 737-200 had an explosive decompression and an in-flight breakup. I'm not going to go too much into this flight because we will probably eventually cover it, but I will tell you the probable cause verbatim. The Republic of China Civil Aeronautics Administration determined that the probable cause of the accident was extensive corrosion damage in the lower fuselage structures, and at a number of locations there were corrosion penetrated, this is translated, through pits, holes, and cracks due to intergranular corrosion and skin-thinning exfoliation corrosion. In addition, the possible existence of undetected cracks because of the great number of pressurization cycles of the aircraft, a total of 33,313 landings, Interaction of these defects and the damage had so deteriorated that rapid fracture occurred at a certain flight altitude and pressure differential, resulting rapid decompression and sudden break of passenger compartment floor beams and connecting frames, cutting control cables and electrical wiring, and eventual loss of power, loss of control, and mid-air disintegration. So instead of the upper part coming off... The lower part came off. And the whole airplane just fell apart in mid-air. No one survived that. Thanks. That plane was the 151st off of the production line. You may remember that this was the 152nd. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) That's not good. Um, Nope. Just reading that gave me chills. Oh, and it also had twice as many flight cycles. I should mention that. This one did. The Far Eastern Air Transport plane had about 33,000, as I had mentioned. 
Aloha Airlines plane had 89,680 cycles. Okay, listen. That would make me very nervous. I'm not done. This was the second highest of any 737 in the world. Okay, super nervous. You know who had first? Aloha Airlines. (laughs) And it would have been production number 153. Yep. Um, Let me read. This is a little verbatim thing from the NTSB report. In accordance with AD, which I will mention later, November 737-12, this was 1-1, this, I'm talking about 1-2, had been inspected on November 5th, 1987. At the time of inspection, the airplane had accumulated 32,000-some hours and 87,000-some cycles. No defects were reported during that inspection. On April 9th, 1988, which within accumulated 33,676 hours and 90,051 cycles, the airplane was hangered for heavy maintenance after this accident. That's the one that didn't that wasn't involved in the accident. That was the one with the higher number. The one number. after this one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It was dismantled on site and sold for parts and scraps. Okay. That makes me think that the maintenance stuff from the year before was a bunch of BS. Yes. I'll get into it. <laughs> Boeing, however, was already aware of these problems and had issued several service bulletins over the years detailing potential problems with their manufacturing. So they were aware of the cracks. They had also altered their manufacturing procedures to prevent this from happening on future manufactured planes, starting with production line number 292. The reason they had done this was there were problems when they were bonding the top skin panel with the bottom. These panels are 18 feet long and were bonded with epoxy, as I had mentioned. They found that their initial process didn't provide a quality surface for the epoxy to seal with and was prone to contamination from moisture and miscellaneous debris. Also, they were susceptible to corrosion. This was called a cold bonding process. Mm -hmm. When this disbonding occurred, the load from pressurization, known as a hoop stress for all, who care? They didn't mention that in the episode, and I care. Uh, That stress then gets transferred solely to the rivets instead of the rivets and epoxy. These rivets were also countersunk, meaning the sheet of metal directly under them tapered to a knife edge under each rivet. Cracks then form in this sharp edge and propagate along the length of the plane or longitudinally, perpendicular to the hoop stress. We have pictures on our website to help visualize this, since countersinking probably doesn't mean a whole lot to the average person. One thing I have mentioned briefly is that sharp edges and corners are more prone to failure. It's called stress concentration factors, and so you're more likely to have some kind of failure, like a uh, crack. So the crack would happen at the the knife edge on the rivets. And then propagate uh, lengthwise down the plane. Yep. Like how the skin came off on this one. Yeah. Great. What what a great time. <laughs> what, what a good time. Uh, just kidding. That's the 737 horrible. became a convertible. <laughs> That's not a good thing. It's not. <laughs> you don't want a convertible plane. No. Believe me. Especially not an airliner. Ooh. Oh, boy. So Boeing did alter their manufacturing processes, starting with airplane number 292. Um, They now use a hot bonding process, which I'm not really going to get into. Point is, this doesn't happen anymore. However, there were 291 planes still out there that were manufactured using this not great process. To counter these problems, Boeing released several service bulletins. And I'm going to get into these just so I can prove that Boeing was not at fault. They did their due diligence. In May 1970, they released one titled Sealing of Cold Bonded Structure with Corrosion Protection, which was later moved to the Structural Repair Manual, so it became part of their regular maintenance and procedures. Mm -hmm. A follow-up was released in 1972 on the corrosion and repair of lap joints, which this process is called a lap joint. 
on the corrosion and repair of lap joints in the first 291 planes with a revision in 1974 detailing how it was reported on 30 of those 291 planes and was identified after corrosion caused skin bulges, cracks, or missing fastener heads. And that prolonged operation with large areas of delamination will eventually result in a fatigue crack. It also detailed how to maintain this, as well as instructions for inspection, intervals, and repair. In 1987, after the Far Eastern Air Transport crash, this was advised again with an alert status, as multiple fatigue cracks were found in three planes with more than 40,000 flight hours and 40,000 flight cycles. They advised to inspect the upper row of rivets at the lap joint of the outer skin panel, exactly where the fuselage tore off in Aloha Airlines Flight 243. In August, they also advised in that service bulletin to inspect the tear straps and repair them in the same area. The FAA conjointly released an Airworthiness Directive, or AD, that asked the same thing, to quote, prevent rapid depressurization as a result of failure of certain fuselage lap splices, end quote. So, so they- what you're telling us is this is entirely the maintenance people at Al- Aloha Airlines and not Boeing or the FAA. False. It is also the FAA's fault. Nick will get into that. Okay. But it is not Boeing's fault. They put out all the pertinent information about this being a known problem and the fix for it. So did the FAA just turn a blind eye then to the maintenance stuff at Aloha? Basically. Oh, nice. I love (laughs) cover-ups. Let me tell you. Just kidding. They're the worst. Don't do them. Uh, (laughs) That's how people die. Yeah. Someone died died on this plane. Well, I can't say and people died because only and one person, person died. And person died. But <laughs> <laughs> they were lucky not anyone else died from this, though. Yeah, there was a lot of luck involved in this. A D check was performed by Aloha Airlines. So for those of you who don't know, um, different inspections and maintenance procedures are classified as A, B, C, and D checks. Um, the more extensive of them are the C and D checks. A checks are performed every like 100 or so flight hours or something like that. Probably. Boeing recommended that D-checks be performed every 20,000 flight hours, and Aloha Airlines was doing them every 15,000 flight hours. So you would think they'd be a little bit more conservative. Eh. The last one was performed on June 22, 1987, about nine months before the incident, and this block called for inspection of the fuselage skin. No adverse findings were recorded. That's BS. It was also inspected in November due to the AD, and still nothing was found. Okay, that's also BS. Yep. That's a bunch of BS. And you said they had a doubler plate, too? Yeah. So they had made some repairs in the past, but not this one. Well, if a passenger can see a crack in the fuselage, yeah, you got some problems there. I just Boo-boo. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently some passengers have been saying that on this airplane, which some passengers have flown on them relatively regularly between islands... And so they just figured that's how it was, but the airplane sounded rattly. Oh, they were also used to rattly sounds. Yeah, okay, they got no. used to rattly no, no, noises. No, 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 no. The airplane sounded <laughs> sounded crinkly and rattly and yeah, No. There's a lot of problems. Oh yes. my gosh. After flight 243, the NTSB inspected all of Aloha Airlines 737 fleet and found considerable evidence of corrosion including quote swelling and bulging of the skin, dished fastener heads, popped and pulled rivets, and blistering, scaling, and flaking paint were present at many sites along the lap joints of almost every plane. End quote. From Aloha? Yeah. (gasps) Okay, that's not good. All of them were really, really high-cycle airplanes. 
Well, yeah, like I understand that, but you also have to make sure if you're using it that much, you have to take care of it so, or something like this is going to happen. Boeing had, I mentioned earlier that DTECs are supposed to be performed every 20,000 hours. They had calculated this based on the fact that there would be, I think it was one and a half cycles per flight hour. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, Aloha Airlines was doing twice that. So were they doing the D-checks when they were supposed to? They were doing them more frequently, but not often enough. So they were doing them as more conservatively than they were told. They were doing it by flight hour. But because their flights were so short and so frequent, they completed more flights than mm-hmm. the normal aircraft as if it were supposed to go like across the United States. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So they weren't doing enough checks. And it wasn't entirely their fault because they were no. going off of the manuals. They were going off of what Boeing told them. Well, and that's fair. And therefore the FAA. But there has to be a point where someone was covering something up. Because if people could see cracks outside of doubler plates, we got a problem. Yep. Yep. And they were doing most of these. So the D-checks were actually split into portions. They were done in overnight segments. They were not. The plane was not pulled into an overhaul facility and kept on the ground. I'll get more into that in a minute. And they were done at night. Okay, we've already Mm -hmm. gone over. Yeah. Those of you who aren't patrons don't know this, but I did uh, Alaska Airlines 261. Mm -hmm. And we covered part of the issue that happened in that flight was they did maintenance in the dark, in the rain, when they weren't supposed to be doing maintenance. In this case, it wasn't just maintenance. It was inspections. Oh, yeah, that too. They were doing inspections in the dark. Yeah, no. You can't see anything. If you're going to do it, you have to have some sort of lighting to be able to see the actual aircraft. You need to put the airplane in a lighted hangar. What a concept. Yeah. Like, you have to be able to see what you're doing in order to do, to do an inspection. You can't just do it outside in the dark. Right. I'll leave that for Nick to cover, though. Yep. Uh, FAA, legal, jargon, no thanks. I'm an engineer. Thank you. <laughs> Speaking of... A local engineer presented another potential series of events, though it does fall into kind of the same the same kind of failure. So the NTSB, to the best of what I could discern, did not discredit or negate it, but didn't really bring it up either. Right. So there was a whole nother possibility as to how this started. And it explains um, a little bit more of the evidence. Matt Austin was an engineer in Honolulu, who had actually been on that plane the previous week. And he had heard rattling that, uh, you know, you should never really hear on a plane. He combed through the 4,000 pages of evidence and used that and his background as a specialist in pressure vessel explosions to determine what happened. So he is literally the perfect person to be talking about this. But he, the part of the advantage that he has is he's not looking at it as an airplane. He's looking at it as a pressure vessel. Right. Pressure vessels can range from a whole host of things, from pipes to cans at a canning factory. They're all pressurized. Yep, submarines. Submarines are a big one. The source of his confusion was that C.B. Lansing was sucked out of the plane and not her colleague, Jane Sato-Tomita, who was the one who was... uh, Thrown to the floor. She was the one that was hit by debris. She was at row two. She was only three rows in front of where C.B. was, and 
she was injured, but she was not sucked out of the airplane. She was nope. thrown to the floor. Both of them were under the area, the section of airplane that was torn away. Mm-hmm. Oh, was she number two? The number two? She was number three. Number three. She was the, so one, she's with... the one who had a concussion. Yes. Yes. She was thrown to the floor, and I forgot to mention this earlier, but Howard, the guy who had aviation experience, thought she was dead and held her hand, and she squeezed back, and that's how... That's how he knew she was alive? Yeah. Aww. I, like, almost cried a lot during this episode. Anyway, <laughs> that's so sad. So Jane was at row two while CB was at row five. And evidence shows that the separation initially happened at row three. One passenger said that he saw CB get pulled to the left of the plane. Blood spatter analyst and former police something or another, Michael Sweet, looked at the pictures of the fuselage and noticed a dark mark that seemed to be the silhouette of the shape of a human head. And that was the blood spatter? Yep. From her head. Yep. But also, we... it it kind of. I'm sorry. This is a little morbid. Um, but it's a little bit weird to me that she would hit her head. On I'm the, literally about to explain that on so the outside this of is, the fuselage. This is the theory that supposedly explains that. Uh, you can look at the picture of the blood spatter on our website. It, Horrible as it is, it's like a dark circle. If you can't see it, like it, it's a little hard to see until your eyes kind of focus on it, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. It's morbid, but it's pertinent. Matt Austin believes that a hole in the tear strips did occur first, and CB Lansing got sucked out and her head impacted the side of the plane, blocking the, uh, the hole from the tear strips, which was 10 inches by 10 inches. Right, so they believe that one 10-inch square had peeled away on the side of the airplane, and she had gone through that first. That's horrifying! And plugged it, and therefore created... Like a plug. Um, and that enacted more stresses on the fuselage, leading to the whole panel tearing off. That's horrifying! Mm-hmm. So, again, this was not mentioned in the report, and it isn't invalid, but it also isn't proven, since you would need The only reason that the I have a problem with that theory is because if she was pulled up and to the left, that would have pulled her through a luggage compartment, which... It's maybe not untold, but it's unlikely. Well, hold on. Let me look back at that picture that I said I wasn't going to look at. Is it on the left side of the plane? Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's at window level. Yeah. So she would have had to have been pulled across the seat. Yep. Yikes. And there, I, there is. Did a... they think it made it? I, I don't know. I guess my, I would have a hard time figuring out how her getting sucked out would have caused that from a ten by ten inch hole. He called it a... Oh, crap. What did he call it? That's horrifying. He called it a fluid hammer. Fluid hammer. Mm-hmm. So the force of her striking the panel would have enacted the force to tear off everything else. Um, and there was blood found on seat 5A that supports this theory. The analogy that he used is... So you know how you have those stoppers on chains for a bathtub? Yes. So if you hold it close to a draining bathtub drain... It gets sucked into it, and there's a force. You can feel it tug on the chain. Right. Imagine if that drain was fragile already. Uh, it could cause a bigger hole. Yeah. So I understand that. I, I just want to know how the blood happened to begin with, I guess. So if she was sucked out, she wouldn't have been sucked out all the way because her shoulders probably wouldn't fit through the 10 by 10. So just her head went out, and the force of the wind knocking her head against the, the fuselage. fuselage would have caused... I don't know, that's a lot of blood. 
to me, it's like... Well, she scraped all the way through a 10 by 10 inch panel. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. I mean... I'm sorry, guys, this is really morbid. Yeah. This is a theory. We're talking about the physics of this, though. And if you see the picture, you'll understand what I'm talking about, is it's... It's hard for me to believe, I mean, if her head was sucked out of a 10 by 10 inch, something could have gotten cut. And then if she hit her head against the side, then I'd understand that, yeah, that could have happened. And then her hitting against it when it's already full of cracks and stuff, Mm -hmm. causing it to come completely off, I would kind of understand that. But I think the only way to actually prove that is to have it actually happen in real life and they wouldn't regret be able to recreate it really they wouldn't be able to recreate it and they determined that the only way to prove whether or not it happened is if they recovered the missing parts and they never recovered her body or the missing parts nope so it's anyone's guess that said so the faa didn't change their probable cause or anything you mean the ntsb NTSB. the ntsb didn't change their probable cause but they do say that this is open it is an open all of them are open all ntsb investigations are open and pending new evidence if you can present something that proves something else happened it's not like it's a closed and shut case it's kind of like murder investigations it's like they can prove only so much with the given technology at the time technology advances they get more evidence and then they're able to close and then a they're case. able to close a case or provide further closure on what happened but in this case it will always be open as i think that's the policy for almost all it is Aviation investigation authorities. It is, because there can always be more evidence brought forward. Well, and there's not really a way to show, in this particular plane, with this particular kind of fatigue, at this point in the flight cycles, if a person getting sucked out of a 10 by 10 inch hole would cause this amount of catastrophic failure. Because to me... I would think that her head wouldn't be the first thing to go through, but maybe it was. She was standing, so... Well, she might have been crouched over row five serving drinks. Maybe. Like, we don't know. You know what I mean? So my point being is there's no way to actually prove that that's what happened. Nope. Because there's no way to actually repeat the same thing over again with the same exact factors put into place here. So a great example of um, evidence that comes later, like... The investigative board not believing one thing, and then the evidence comes later, is the Asiana flight in San Francisco just a handful of years ago. Now, a lot of people maybe remember that. That's the 777 that struck the seawall. I won't get too deep into it. But uh, the airplane came to rest in a few pieces, and it was still sitting on the belly, however. And passengers kept swearing up and down. The airplane did a cartwheel. It rolled over itself. And the investigators were like, no, there's no way that could happen. They were like, and no, then they saw a video just... and they were like, oh. Yeah, they were like, no, that was just your perception based on G's. A lot of things were happening. The airplane was falling apart. It probably felt like you did a cartwheel, but you didn't do it. And then a video surfaced on the internet where you just see the left wing go straight up in the air. It rolled all the way over and struck the ground again on the belly. And then investigators were like, they weren't kidding. Yeah, so <laughs> there's no real way to actually figure out truly what happened here, and there's no way, because, I mean, this is 1988, right? Yeah. we don't, They didn't have camera phones. They didn't well, even have cell phones, really. Nope. So, I mean, there's not really a great way, even, like, from passengers, I'm not even sure they would understand what they were seeing, much nope. less. Well, most passengers were in shock, so it is difficult to get 
They didn't rely on passengers for they this. They also had 500 mile per hour winds blowing in their face. Yeah, right. most of the passengers that were in that part of the cabin probably don't remember much. You probably blacked out, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I you would probably. Rather. Your brain probably <laughs> locked that memory out of your brain to keep you alive. For one, you were all, for one that too, you were also probably hypoxic. Hypoxic, on top of being in shock, on top of 500 mile an hour winds. I mean, come I on. I would sure rather black out. I would rather black out. <laughs> Um, so before Nick gets into the FAA BS, um, I do want to talk a little bit about the passengers who survived. One of them that I mentioned earlier, Patricia, she had to undergo therapy. As I would think you would, yeah. Um, Yeah. But one of the things that her psychologist had her do was go up in a helicopter with the psychologist and go around that area of air where the decompression happened repeatedly until she was no longer scared of it. I mean, that makes sense. It's called like... Um, face it, fears? Face, yeah, it's like fear therapy. You do something so often with what you fear that you become desensitized to it. So yep. you no longer yeah. fear it's it. It's yeah. exposure therapy. And there are certain fears that that's harder to do with others. If you stick me in a room with a bunch of moths, I will probably kill you. <laughs> yeah, Christy's really scared of moths. That's okay. I was traumatized as a child. Um, anyway, and then the other guy I talked about, Howard, he specifically said a lot of people talk about getting back up on the horse again, but it's not that easy. Yeah. No, I, so a perfect example of that is when, what was it, junior year of of my high school, your senior year? Yeah. No, it was my senior year because, um, we, I didn't have that card in my senior year of high school. I think it was in the summer between the two. It might have been. Anyway. Uh, me and Christy got into a car accident in my car, and it took me like close to a year to actually be able to drive normally again and not be scared. Yep. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's they say to just get back on the horse and keep doing it, but you get so afraid that it's going to happen again that you yeah. just don't want to do it. Which I get. A month after getting my driver's license, I got into a little bit of a fender bender, and I didn't drive for three months. Nick yeah. became my chauffeur. <laughs> Well, and I mean that I period. I mean, I think first of all, it's kind of good to have that humbling moment. The talking about fair driving, enough. not about air flight. To be fair, I, I don't want to experience this just as a humbling moment. No, but having something that happens like that to be a humbling moment to make sure you're ca- more careful the next time. This could have been a humbling moment for maintenance. I mean, mm-hmm. you killed somebody. Yeah, like someone. got sucked out of a plane because of this. And their family's never really going to have closure because they don't have her body. Right. They don't know what happened to her. They don't know where she fell. They don't know where her body went. It's at the bottom of the ocean floor somewhere. And, you know, it's... That's that's a thing. Like, you can't... We will have a picture of her face on our website, just so you know what she looks like and you can remember her and honor her. She has a memorial in Honolulu. She has a memorial garden. I think at the Honolulu airport. Yes, at the Honolulu airport. It's just, I I feel for the people who, you know, had to experience this. I can't even imagine getting sucked out of a plane. Nope. Much less experiencing someone getting sucked out of a plane. Yeah. There are plenty of stories and such you can go read about this stuff, but uh, we're not here to tell everybody's story. That's for their own doing. Right. But my my point being, those of you who decided it was okay to not put in good maintenance work in here, this is your fault. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to be 
super harsh here, but it's true. If you had done proper maintenance work and the inspections had gone like they were supposed to, et cetera, et cetera, this wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. And there was ADs put down by put out by Boeing and Boeing's telling people this could happen. This is a possibility. And you're telling me that this wasn't preventable? Of course it was. You decided that you didn't want to do your job correctly. And people, a person died from it. More people could have died. And you're lucky more people didn't die. You know? Like, looking at this picture right here, all those people in those seats, that's horrifying. Yep. He has blood on him. Yeah. And Hers. that doesn't surprise me. No, that's seat 5A. Yeah. That was probably her. Mm-hmm. That's that's terrifying. So, so yeah, like, are, are you going to get into some of the? Yeah. So I have, I still have findings. We still have probable cause, and I still have recommendations. Go for it. So plenty to go through here still. So there were twenty six findings. However, I managed to get those narrowed down, and I think I only actually get rid of like four. So oh boy. <laughs> so we've got a lot to go through. Sorry, this is going to be a long episode. A yeah, real long episode. I yeah, think we it need it, though. You know, I think it's been, uh, we haven't had a really long episode in a while. Yeah. So well, Tenerife, but that was in two episodes, so. Yeah, that's true. So, findings. So, they found that although the airline operated according to the FAA operating certificate and operations specifications, the quality of the maintenance and inspection program was deficient. No, sh <laughs> <laughs> No, duh. Miranda's been cooped up too long. <laughs> Dude, you have no idea. They found that the crew's use of 280 to 290 knot airspeed and the use of air brakes in the descent indicated that they did not consider the appropriate emergency descent checklist, which states in part that if structural integrity is in doubt, airspeed should be limited as much as possible and high maneuvering loads should be avoided. So, this one is very... Mm, I don't know. Because Cause it seems to blame the pilots. Right. And it, it it's, it's not the pilots' fault. So it's not their fault, but it's also nothing nothing worse happened. And so they actually managed to do too pretty well with the situation they had. Yes, they went to the wrong emergency checklist maybe, but they still pulled this off. They landed the plane and no and, one else died. Yeah. Right. Like it and they and they didn't do anything more catastrophic. Like we said before the fact that the captain made the decision to just go ahead and land, even though they didn't know about the front landing gear, you know? Right. Is like, that was to keep the passengers safe so right. that even if the cockpit flew off, right, yep. and they would have gotten hurt, at least the passengers would have been okay. Yeah. That they could have gotten off. Right. Which, by the way, the uh, some of the fire crews on the ground did spot that the landing gear was down before they landed and air traffic control did manage to relay that information to them before they touched down that their landing gear was down and locked. Now, that said, well, not that it was locked, but that it was down. That said, it could have been unlocked and it still could have collapsed. So there there was still some fears, but at least they knew the landing gear was showing down physically. Moral of the story, it wasn't the pilot's fault. I think they did exactly what they needed to to get the plane on the ground. Yes, in this case, yes. They found that the left engine became inoperative because the engine control cables separated due to the increase in cable tension caused by the cabin floor deformation coupled with corrosion found in the area of the cable separation. They yes. found that the fuselage failure initiated in lap joints along section 10L, the fatigue 
failure was a result of multiple site fatigue cracking on the skin adjacent to the rivet holes along the lap joint, upper rivet row, and tear strap disbond, which negated the fail-safe characteristics of the fuselage. So bad to the point where someone could see the crack from the jet bridge. That's not okay. Nope. They found that the fatigue cracking initiated from the knife edge associated with the countersunk lap joint rivet holes. The knife edge concentrated stresses that were transferred through the rivets because of lap joint desponding. They found that the desponding on the lap joints and the tear straps originated from manufacturing difficulties encountered with surface preparation and or bond material processing during the construction of the airplane which resulted in lap joint bonds with low environmental durability or lack of bonding. Literally everything I said earlier. Yep. They found that although a section of, a, of the 737 was tested to 150,000 cycles during certification, the test did not reflect the fatigue performance of the actual fleet aircraft because the test did not consider the long-term effects of disbonding, corrosion, and fatigue cracking in the lap joints as experienced in the airline service. So in other words, they went through tests to prove that you know, they wouldn't get cracks in the fuselage over 150,000 cycles of the pressurization of the cabin and depressurization, but they didn't account for corrosion, disbonding, or fatigue due to actual airline service. They found that the disbonding of lap joints with resulting corrosion and probably and probable fatigue cracking on the 737 was explicitly defined in Boeing's Service Bulletin 737-53-1039, Revision 2, dated February 8th of 1974. So they knew about this issue 14 more years than ago. 10, yeah, more than 10 years before this occurred, and they basically just ignored it. Essentially. Pretty much. I mean, they made some repairs, but not enough to make it structurally sound. Now, even in this finding, it came up with a qualification, though. It said, however, the seriousness of the issue was still not recognized. Any permanent fix was not given by Boeing. The only action given was a frequent, rigorous inspection and repair. So they didn't give a permanent fix for the problem. I don't know if there is a permanent fix, though. There I mean, is. The, the hot bonding. To do it to new to old planes, though? But, I mean, that costs so, hundreds of thousands of dollars, I right. think. Right, but that was... I'll get into it. That's one of the recommendations later. Basically, one of the only ways to fix it was to completely overhaul the fuselage. Yep. And, and that's that basically probably what, costs too much money for the, the company to do. So that's basically what they told the airlines to do. But by the time this report came out, most of those airplanes that were that came out of that, that series, the two up to 292... Would have been so old anyways that most of them were just scrapped. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest. No. So, they found that there was sufficient info available to Aloha to alert them to these issues, and they should have had a maintenance following the guidance to repair the crack before they got to a critical point. They should have, I mean, it it sounds like there was more than one, but they should have done something. If the crack is seeable by passengers, that's not a good thing. Right. They found that the FAA AD 87-21-08 should have mandated inspections of all the lap joints per Boeing Aircraft Safety Bulletin 73753A-1039 Revision 3 instead of limiting the inspection to only lap joints at Section 4. So that one's really confusing, but what that's actually saying is that the, the FAA mandated... So Boeing put out that Aircraft Service Bulletin that I mentioned in the previous finding as Revision 2, then they put out... Revision 3, which told carriers, air carriers that flew the 737 to inspect lap joints along all those sections. 
However, the FAA only mandated from that bulletin that Section 4 of the airplane be inspected, and it was Section 10 on this 737, which was in the bulletin, that came apart. So that was the FAA. That was the FAA. They and it, should have said, you know what, Boeing said this, you need to make sure you inspect the entire aircraft instead of just this one section. Right. They found that it is unclear if Aloha performed the eddy current inspection in November of 1987 in accordance with the AD, or whether it was performed incorrectly. So this is an interesting one. So you might remember an eddy current test from our very, very first episode. An eddy current test runs electrical current through a piece of metal to tell you, basically, if there's any break in that current, which would mean any compromise. Yes, any compromise in that current, which would mean that there is a crack in the metal. And they can't confirm whether Aloha Airlines did the test or if they did it correctly per the AD when they inspected the airplane back in November of 1987. So was that the FAA's fault that they didn't get that information correctly? No, that would have been the maintenance facility's fault. So it fault. was Aloha's fault. Uh-huh. They found that if the Eddy current inspection had been performed and done correctly, that it would have found the cracking problem. So Fantastic. It it just wasn't done correctly then. More than likely or one it or the ignored. other. Yep, one or the other. They found that the FAA licensed mechanics are not required to be knowledgeable in the maintenance and inspection of modern contemporary aircraft because the training curriculum could not keep up with the advancing aviation technology at the time. What? Yeah, this is where they start blaming the FAA more than Aloha because Aloha's mechanics were trained to a certain extent, but the training schools around there only had the curriculum for older aircraft. And that was pretty true across the entire industry because so many advances have been made in aviation into dur- turbojets away from propellers and such. They just and weren't made aware. They just weren't made aware of so many different problems that came with airplanes flying higher, faster, and stronger than ever before. Uh, okay, so I can I can understand that to a certain extent, but when you have a visual crack outside of a doubler plate... Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's just a problem. That's you being negligent. Yes. Which, okay, to be fair, I don't know what, if they could see the crack when they did the inspection the nine months beforehand. Right. I'm not I'm not trying to More purposefully than... accuse the mechanics. I'm saying if they could see it mm-hmm. and they didn't do anything about it, that's negligence. More... Here's more of my problem with that, though. The fact that the NTSB went out and looked at it, their fleet and there were compromises in the skin of the fuselage on almost every single 737. Which proves that they could have found them. So, again, meaning negligence. Like, you you can tell me all you want that there was a training issue, fine. But if you can see actual issues in the fuselage skin, Mm -hmm. that's not the FAA's fault anymore. That's you being negligent and being lazy and not doing your job and not fixing those things. Or the company telling you, it's fine, we need this airplane, you can't... You can't pull it in for major maintenance right now. So more than which likely, which has happened before as well as we've talked about on this podcast. So and that could be part of it, but more than likely, what it's saying basically in that previous recommendation is that the mechanics maybe saw the cracks, but didn't even know how severe of an issue that really actually was because they didn't know the advanced in technology, the advancement in technology of the aviation. So they had been dealing with propeller airplanes that sure had been pressurized over and over and over again, but they'd probably seen cracks before in those airplanes. They didn't fly as high or as fast, so it never caused this big of a problem. They didn't know how severe it would be on an airplane that flew this high and fast. I don't know. To me, that seems a little bit of a scapegoat type thing. A little bit. Having a skin 
a an issue. So here's the thing, my all, my other issue with that too. The directive that Boeing gave about this issue with the the skin mm-hmm. happened on more than 10 years before. The mm-hmm. first one came out in 1970. Right. Yeah. So this happened in 1988. And That's they, 18 years ago. They had this aircraft at that time. Yep. The they, plane was manufactured in 1969. Right. Yep. So my point being, Aloha had this information well in advance. They also have been dealing with the 737 for years because they had they it said that they had this aircraft since it got manufactured. Yep. So I can see to an extent what you're saying is true, but the mm-hmm. other part of it is negligence. Yeah, it is. I can't say that oh they didn't know what to do. No. You can't completely say that's the case. Right. Because they were dealing with the 737 for I don't know, close to 20 years at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, so close to 20 years that it's like, I'm sorry, but even if you say that, oh, well, we've only been dealing with, we haven't been able to keep up with training, blah, blah, blah. Well, you've had this aircraft for almost 20 years. Why haven't you been able to keep up with the training? Right. Saying that if there's a, an explosive decompression, it can happen from cracks in the fuselage. Right. I mean, and what? I'm kind of going on a little bit of a tangent, but I, I can't fully say that that completely helps me to be like, Oh, okay, it's the FAA. No, no. So, well, and they still did solely blame almost entirely the Aloha Airlines. They did. And so the thing that kind of goes hand in hand with that is that the AD and the Aircraft Service Bulletin were both directed at this problem, but they did say, the NTSB did say earlier, like I said, they didn't know how truly severe this problem could be. They only knew some amount of the consequence, but they didn't know how truly severe it would be until the incident the year before with the Far Eastern Airline transport and or Far East Air Transport and then this incident in 1988. So those two proved how severe those issues were, and it was after this one that they finally issued further ADs that said this has to be fixed immediately. Okay, so, I mean, I I can kind of understand the point of they didn't realize how catastrophic it could be, but it can cause an explosive decompression, which they did say could have been a cause when they did the AD. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a little bit of both, but... uh... I think more so the pointing the finger at the FAA in any capacity is to set a precedent. Yes. To say that, yes, you need to make sure you keep up on the training... And the um, not just inspections of we'll get into the inspection portion of that more in the recommendations because so, that does get deeper. Let me finish the findings. They found that human factors can prevent the inspections from correctly detecting cracks. So human factors being they don't fully they don't read the the document correctly. They don't in, use the eddy current inspection correctly. They don't inspect the right area they don't do well and they things. don't realize like when we covered the um the china airlines flight uh mm-hmm. they don't realize how big the crack is i well, mean yeah. if it's under a doubler um and they can they can only see a little bit of it poking out from the doubler you know maybe right. that's what happened i mean we don't know what they saw in this the, case the, the no- cracks no. pretty well went down the entire row of rivets outside. yes um, but my point being sometimes when you have a doubler on there you can't see the entirety of the issue etc cetera, etc cetera. so refer back Back to episode seven. Um, There is a a little bit of human error built in that needs to be built in, right? Yep. But in this case, if 
it's big enough that a passenger can see it, it's probably not great. Right. They found that the airline failed to recognize the human factors in correctly performing these inspections, and the severity of having their inspector force trained and actively inspect for the cracks. However, reports of fleet-wide cracks received by the FAA after the Aloha, Aloha accident indicated that a similar lack of critical attention to lap joint inspections and fatigue cracks detection was an industry-wide problem. So it wasn't just Aloha. They found that it was, it was all other airlines, airlines. Yeah. which doesn't surprise me because no. there are there were 291 planes out there. Right. Well, at this point, 289. What this showed wasn't a, it was an industry-wide problem, so it was an FAA problem. Yep. What this meant is that the FAA wasn't doing proper oversight of the airlines to make sure that their inspectors were doing what they were supposed to do in checking these airplanes and making sure they were safe enough to fly. Right. They found that because of inexact instructions in the AD maintenance personnel did not re- did not replace the upper row of countersunk rivet joint rivets. So where the tain- where the plane tore off basically. To be clear, what this meant was that in the AD they were supposed to replace that entire top row of rivets from countersunk to protruding rivets. So yep. they were supposed to be, instead of being flat with the surface of the airplane, they were supposed to stick out and have basically a ball head on them. Like what you think of most rivets. Yeah. yeah. This flat. is why they don't use countersunk rivets. Right, because that countersink creates a knife edge. They were supposed to replace all those, inspect for cracks, and replace them with, with top rivets per that AD. And however, they didn't? However, because this, what this reads is because of inexact instructions in the AD, maintenance personnel did not replace the upper row of those countersunk rivets with okay i think that's a little bit of a of mm, i don't know i think it might just be laziness on the airline's part but but also they believe that it didn't properly explain what they were supposed to do in the ad okay and maybe that's true part of it is just to say that some of it wasn't fully maintenance personnel maybe it wasn't like i said we don't know what they saw in the inspections right and i'm not trying to i mean part of it is their fault right yep i'm not trying to fully place the blame on them because i'm sure some of it was the faa but to me that seems like to kind of cover the airlines butts a little bit to be like it wasn't completely clear right. that they need to replace these rivets i'm like yeah but why would they mention the rivets otherwise right so there's only three more findings here they found that the the audit of aloha by a third-party entity did not reflect accurately the airworthiness of the operating fleet because they failed to properly inspect the physical condition of the fleet They found that the principal inspector was too overwhelmed by other responsibilities and was not specifically trained to deal with the crack inspections. Also, the issue was worsened because he was not included in the informational loop regarding Boeing aging aircraft inspections. I'm going to have an aneurysm. What? I know. (laughs) Excuse me? Yeah. Just CC the man on an email. No email. Beast? Okay, you're probably right. There probably wasn't an email. But They're like, on an island. Send an extra letter. They didn't. They found that the premise that aircraft can be operated indefinitely in a safe airworthiness condition is sound only if operators have an effective inspection, corrosion, and damage repair program. So basically, there was a there was a uh, industry-wide belief that airplanes could be operated forever, but that is only true if they're properly maintained. And inspected. Also, forever's a stretch. Yeah, they don't. They don't. They don't. They definitely don't operate them forever. They do have a service life. But no, duh. 
is kind of also my thing. But Take do, good care of something and it'll last a while. You do look at some airlines operate airplanes from the 60s still. I mean, that's insane. They they take airplanes out of the out of the desert. They're like, yeah, we're just going to keep flying this airplane because it's the only thing we can afford. Well, and <laughs> if they take good enough care of it, sure. Right. I that's, mean, why not? That's the key. So that's it for... It's like operating an old car. Take yeah. care of it. It'll last a long time. Right. Well, and so I'm writing a... Yeah, literature review right now for my class, and it's talking about repairs to aircraft. And one of the primary purposes of a repair is to have the plane go through its service life without this problem being a hindrance ever again. Good. Yep. So that's it for findings. Probable cause? The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the failure of the Aloha Airlines maintenance program to detect the presence of significant desponding and fatigue damage, which ultimately led to the failure of the lap joint at S10L and the separation of the fuselage upper lobe. Contributing to the accident were the failure of Aloha Airlines management to supervise properly its maintenance force, the failure of the FAA to evaluate properly the Aloha Airlines maintenance program and to assess the airline's inspection and quality control deficiencies, the failure of the FAA to require Airworthiness Directive 8721-8, inspection of all of the lap joints proposed by Boeing Alert Service Bulletin SB73753A1039, and the lack of a complete terminating action neither generated by Boeing nor required by the FAA after the discovery of early production difficulties in the B737 cold bond lap joint, which resulted in low bond durability, corrosion, and premature fatigue cracking. That is a mouthful. Basically to just say... Everything they didn't, we already said. Yeah, pretty much. They didn't inspect the rivets. They didn't change the rivets like they were supposed to. The FAA didn't do the proper way of making sure training manuals were updated, etc., etc., etc. Inspections, yep. So, Refer to the last hour. Yep. Yeah. That was... <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably the last, like, 15 to 20 minutes. So, recommendations. There were three sections to the recommendations. <sighs> The of first, course. <laughs> the first one was to the FAA and was the largest section by far. They recommended to the FAA to provide specific guidance and proper engineering support to principal inspectors. So in other words, from the manufacturers, from, you know, just make sure that there's engineering guidance available to inspectors when they're doing their job. They recommended to the FAA to identify airlines whose airplanes use differed significantly from the flight cycle versus flight time upon which the maintenance planning document was predicted and ensure that maintenance programs provide timely and efficient detection of both cycle and time-related deficiencies. In other words, they're saying, find the airlines that use the airplane more often than you state and figure out what they need to do differently. They recommended to the FAA to revise the regulations governing the certification of maintenance technician schools and the licensing of AMP programs, or airframe and power plant maintenance programs, and those mechanics to require that the curriculum and testing include modern aviation technologies. Get up to date. They recommended to the FAA to require formal and recurrent training for aircraft inspectors. This should include apprenticeship and skill demonstrations. They recommended to the FAA to require operators to provide specific training programs for maintenance and inspection personnel about the conditions under which visual inspections must be conducted, require operators to periodically test personnel on their ability to detect the defined defects. A lot of that's about training, just making sure that inspectors and maintenance people know how to do their job. Also, do it in a, a lit hangar? Yes. Not outside that in is, the dark? That is the primary thing that came from that is 
that inspectors have to do their job in a well-lit area. So you can see? <laughs> yep. What a concept. And maintenance personnel as well. They recommended to the FBA to develop a continuing inspection program for the 737s that have incorporated lap joint terminating action, which are protruding head rivets on the top row of the rivets along those lap joints, to detect any fatigue cracking that may develop in the middle or lower rows of the rivets for both inner and outer skin panels and tear strap holes, and define the process of inspection, intervals, and corrective actions needed for continuing airworthiness. So they're saying that now that all of them have the top row of rivets replaced, because they have to, that to keep an eye on the middle and lower rivets to make sure they don't start doing the same thing now. Which makes sense. Yeah. They recommended to the FAA to develop a model program for a comprehensive corrosion control program for all approved operator maintenance programs. So they're saying there to make sure that you demonstrate a proper way to develop a a comprehensive corrosion control program for all operators of these airplanes. Since there was so much rampant corrosion, it was ridiculous. There was actually corrosion on almost everything they found on that airplane. I mean, it is a salty and humid environment. Yes, and the airplanes were flying nonstop through it. They recommended to the FAA to issue an AD for 737 aircraft equipped with carbon steel engine control cables to periodically inspect the cables for evidence of corrosion so that they don't have an engine failure. They recommended to the FAA to require that air carrier maintenance programs use the manufacturer engineering services available or other resources to periodically evaluate their maintenance practices. So, in other words, the maintenance programs need to have resources available to them. They do have some, but they need to make sure that they're using them to make sure that the maintenance program is always up to snuff. They recommended to the FAA to revise the National Aviation Safety Inspection Program, or NASIP, objectives to require that inspectors evaluate not only paperwork trail, but also the actual condition of the fleet airplanes undergoing maintenance and on the operational ramp. Seriously? Yeah, that's seriously one of the recommendations. I think that was my favorite out of all of them. One of them was literally like, just revise it so that it doesn't point toward making a paper trail, that it makes you actually inspect the airplane to go along with the paper trail. They recommended to the FAA to require NASIP teams to indicate related systemic deficiencies within an operator's maintenance activity when less than satisfactory fleet condition is identified. What this is saying, because this is really interesting to me, this is hitting that, remember that third-party audit thing I talked about in findings? Yes. What it's talking about here is NASIP is the one that did that, and NASIP found problems with the airplanes, but they didn't issue any corrective actions. They just stated that they found problems. What? Yeah. So then what is your purpose of being there? Exactly. So this is saying that it's requiring those NASIP teams to indicate related systemic deficiencies within an operator's maintenance activity when less than satisfactory fleet condition is identified. So making sure that they come up with a corrective action, work with the maintenance facility to do a better job. They recommended to the FAA to evaluate the quality of FAA surveillance provided by principal inspectors as part of NASIP. This is saying that the FAA didn't have enough involvement with their inspectors to make sure that they were doing proper oversight of maintenance facilities to make sure that inspectors are actually doing their job and inspecting the airplanes. What a concept. Yep. They recommended to the FAA to enhance the the stature and performance of principal inspectors through training and management backing to ensure that they are able to efficiently do their job and indicate when corrective action is needed. Basically, just make sure your inspectors aren't overlooked. The inspectors are incredibly important. It's saying that principal inspectors should be backed up by both training and by management backing, like having managements go to 
like say, yeah, they can do it, to make sure that the inspectors are listened to and that they can efficiently do their job. Recommended to the FAA to require that all turbojet aircraft certified in the future and those currently flying are subjected to testing that is two times the, the expected service life of the airframe. It's called a safety factor. Mm-hmm. They recommended to the FAA to discontinue the classification of aircraft skin as malfunction evident or damage obvious on supplemental inspection documents. Now, that one hits home really hard in this one because... The repair manual, this is where they're taking the blame off of, the, of Aloha a little bit more and saying this is the FAA's fault, because in the documents that do state this may be a problem, they're stating that the skin should be very evident in having problems, which is not always true. The cracks are not always obvious. No, sometimes, in a lot of the cases of this plane and all the other ones in the fleet, the cracks at the rivets were actually still hidden by the rivet. Exactly. They recommend to the FAA to issue Air Carrier Operations Bulletin for all air carrier flight training programs to review the accident scenario and reiterate the need to assess airplane airworthiness as stated in the operator's manual before taking action that may further damage the airframe. This is hitting at the pilots again, and I still don't necessarily agree with this one, but I guess they had to come up with something for this. This is because they didn't use that proper emergency procedure, and this is basically saying to make sure that they train to this incident being what it was, trained to this happening and saying, here's what you actually do in this scenario to make sure you don't further damage the airframe, even though they didn't. Now that they know that such a catastrophe is possible, they have to train for how to deal with it in flight. Yep. So then that's it for the FAA recommendations. Now for the Aloha Airlines recommendations, there were only three. They recommended to revise the maintenance program to recognize the high-time, high-cycle nature of the fleet operations and initiate maintenance inspection and overhaul concepts based on realistic and acceptable calendar and flight cycle intervals. Just basically you saying, don't say. Just basically saying that their airplanes were much higher cycle and higher time than most and that they need to change their maintenance practices to that. They recommended to Aloha Airlines to initiate a corrosion prevention and control program. What a concept. Because they didn't have one, and they were just rampant with corrosion. That is huge in aviation. They recommended to Aloha Airlines to revise and upgrade the technical division manpower and organization to provide the necessary management, QA, engineering, technical training, and production personnel to maintain high level of airworthiness at the fleet. Basically, they're saying they're really understaffed in all divisions of maintenance and quality and inspection and engineering, so they didn't have what they needed to actually be flying at these airplanes at the level that they were, and they need to have a really high level of maintenance in order to maintain these airplanes. That's it for the Aloha Airlines ones. There's only one other section, and there was only one recommendation for that, and that's to the Air Transport Association. They recommended, oh? Yep. They recommended to assist member carriers to establish maintenance department engineering services to evaluate maintenance practices, including structural repair, compliance with ADs, and service bulletins, performance of inspection, and QA programs, and overall effectiveness of continuing airworthiness programs. So basically they're saying to the Air Transport Association, set up a standardized way to make all air carriers, to make sure all air carriers have an engineering base for their maintenance programs to make sure that they are able to keep everything in line, up to snuff, and standardized. So that's it for all of the recommendations on this one. This was a hefty episode. It really was. It's very long. We a warned lot, you. A lot was learned from this. A lot was gained from this. And this cannot happen again. And it hasn't. It would Since. Nothing this catastrophic has ever happened since. This is really a one-of-a-kind, and it 
it still to this day blows most people's minds when you hear about this incident. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I mean, you see the, you hear about it, you hear us talk about it. Then look at the photos. Like that, that's crazy that that airplane didn't just fall apart. Yeah, it is. I'm surprised only one person died. I'm surprised not more people got sucked out of the plane. It it's kind of surprising to me that this really was. It's like, it's crazy. This is one of those things that's like literally once ever and. For you to have been there, this is, like, unbelievable. I mean, there, there's almost nothing more impossible to happen to you. Yep. And it wouldn't happen again. Uh, and now it won't because they have a different way of curing the rivets and things like that. Also, a lot of plane manufacturers today are now going to composites instead of metal sheeting. Right. Which All may right. present their own issues, but they have pretty well done what they need to do with composites already because they've already been incorporated in, a- in aircraft actually for a long time. Just in different ways. And they are actually stronger in terms of hoop stress. Yep. So um, modern planes like the 787 and the Airbus A350 are actually able to be pressurized to lower altitudes, meaning it's more comfortable. You don't experience as much jet lag because you have more oxygen inside the cabin. Because they're able to put more pressure on the cabin because it can hold more. I mean, that's always good. Um, So those are some... More recent developments that are pertinent to the class and the report I just finished writing this morning. Also, thanks to our Hawaii listeners, we do have a couple, or at least one, um, that I looked at from the list. So those of you who are in Hawaii, hi, or Hawaii. Um, Aloha. Hello. Aloha. Aloha. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. Please stay healthy. Yes, I was in my house 99.9% this week, and it sucked because we just got the the stay-home order last Thursday from when we were recording this. So that was in March, technically still. So stay safe, stay healthy. Please make sure to wash your hands. Wear a mask. If you can, wear a mask. Um, So here's the gift of a long episode for you to keep you entertained. Keep you less lonely, maybe? Or something. I mean, I know I've been I've been ridiculously lonely the past week. Um, That's fair. Even anyway. with seeing people via video call and stuff, so I get it, friends. Um, but try to you know it it'll only last. I'm hoping a little longer, and then we'll be able to go out and see people again. So let's hope. All uh, right, talk to you next week. It was Aloha. What was the flight number? Aloha two forty three. Aloha two forty three. Have a good week. We'll uh, talk to you next week. Keep, Keep your speed up. up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.